My name's Jim Derrick, and welcome to another edition of Chapters. On today's program, we'll have a conversation with a woman who refused to give up on her childhood dreams. Playwright and composer Elizabeth Addison joins us in studio today to talk to us about the inspiration behind her musical, This Is Treatment. We'll hear from Elizabeth about how she overcame seemingly insurmountable odds to realize her dreams by creating a play that recently opened in New York City. All that and much more coming up next on Chapters. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Chapters. In studio today, we have playwright and composer Elizabeth Addison. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jim, for having me on your show. This is really exciting. Thank you for being here. I've been looking forward to this for for quite a while now. Elizabeth has has a story of somebody who has come to realize uh, a dream. That dream was a notion that you really had growing up. I did have a feeling that I was supposed to... do something, uh, write music. Right. I had this sort of like gut instinctual mm-hmm. feeling that I had stories to tell. Right. Um, and when I saw Rent for the first time when I was 13, I said, oh my gosh, that's something that I'm going to do. I'm right. going to write a story about my life one day. I don't know how though, because I don't know how to write music, but I know I'm going to figure it out someday. So along the way, there was a there was that voice, that, that proverbial angel sitting on your shoulder saying, hey, Elizabeth, You've got you've got us you've got a song in you. You have something that needs to come out. And I hated that voice for a long time. And incredibly, Elizabeth's dreams and that little voice uh, that started when she was a very little girl has resulted in her creating this wonderful musical. This is treatment, which will be Broadway Supper Club Feinstein's 54 Below. And that will be appearing this month. What an exciting time for you. It is. It's it's really exciting. It's sort of as though all these last few years have just sort of hit me bang right now. Yeah. Uh, because I've been working on the musical now for five years, for right. a little over five years, right. uh, self-producing it, writing it, casting it, doing all the things for it. And so now it's just like, okay, well, Elizabeth, your work is finally... Uh, uh, being noticed, I guess. Sure, sure. And, and, and you know, we're going to talk a lot about not only what the production is, but importantly, Elizabeth's story and how she, how she, uh, how she got to where she is today. So, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about that voice. That, and when did that voice appear? So, as a child, I was always drawn to the arts, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the performing arts. So, singing, uh, dancing, acting. And um, I didn't know that I was going to want to be a creative artist or, or create the work uh, until I saw Rent. Uh, and so Rent at 13 uh, just changed everything for me. I had known about musical theater. I had seen Phantom of the Opera and Miss Saigon and such. Yeah, okay. But after seeing Rent, yeah. I just was like, the people on that stage look like me. Yeah. They sound like me. Uh-huh. This is a story that I can relate to because drug addiction was running rampant in my household. And it was just something that I really uh, connected with immediately. And so after I saw it, and like a lot of other composers, a lot of composers that are on Broadway today or that are making uh, work uh, were inspired by Jonathan Larson because he just sort of changed the game. Right. Um, but I was just like, I'm going to write a musical one day about my life. And I thought that it was going to be about my family history, uh, about my father being an addict, about how it sort of hurt our family. I thought it was going to be that. Um, but when I saw Rent afterwards, I also thought, well, I don't know how to write music and I don't really excel at I was taking a 
piano classes. I took piano for a couple of years, but I never was any good. In fact, if you were to go back to my old teachers and be like, Elizabeth Addison has a musical, they'd be like, who? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. But I, yeah. I, I just had this thing inside of me that just was uh, sparked after seeing Rent uh, that, that one day I was going to have a musical. Yeah. But you had to be clear, you had no formal training no. at all. You were you were um, where did you grow up? I grew up in Boston, um, like Mattapan High Park area. Yep. Yep. And so uh, you, you were going to these to these plays really on your own part of school. Uh, yeah. my There was part of school. And then my sister um, had a program at her school where you could get really cheap tickets for like uh, Phantom or Miss Saigon whenever it came to like the Wang Center or sure. something like that. But you were self-motivated to go because you didn't have family members taking you or on a weekend necessarily or. Well, my sister. My sister was helpful. Like she was the one that sort of was just like, come and see Rent. But there was no like real pushing right. in terms of going into the arts or anything right. like You're... that. My mom, she put me in dance classes she did. when I was okay. a child. But again, I was never, yeah. <laughs> I was never good. She wasn't pushing you hard. No, no, yeah. No, yeah. no, no, no. Yeah. So this, I guess the point that I'm making is that this is really uh, an organic inspiration that you have. Well, I would sort of say in terms of like the composing, right? So the performance aspect of it, um, it it's kind of seemed obvious that Elizabeth was going to perform uh, at some point yeah. in her life. Yeah. Uh, but the actual, the writing of the thing mm -hmm. uh no one would have foresaw that right right so let's let's talk a little bit about that and about your life um you're you uh graduated from high school mm -hmm. and um did you stay in the boston area i didn't uh i graduated from high school and i did really really poorly i barely graduated i should not have graduated mm -hmm. um at least when i did graduate i should have been held back um and I didn't have any college to look forward to. The whole process of the college, app, the application process just felt overwhelming and I didn't have any uh, help in that area. Uh, so I decided to move to California um, because I thought that was going to fix me. Right. I did a geographical cure. But the thing about that is that when it doesn't matter because you bring you with you. Did you? So. Yeah, right. Boy, if I found that out the hard way. And, and that is so true. I've... <laughs> sat on more than one beach myself and thought, oh my gosh, my problems are here with me. How'd they get here? Mm -hmm. um, so you get out to California. Or are, they, are you there alone? Did you travel No, I, I went for love. Um, ah, okay. Uh, but I also primarily went to get away from what I thought was my biggest problem, I my household. I understand. And so while you're out there, what what do you do to support yourself? Uh, well, uh, my partner at the time was working. We lived together right away. Mm -hmm. um, and I started working in a bank. Um, and then I, I did like um, timeshare sales. Oh, yeah, sure. Just stupid. Oh, boy. Um, were you in the were you the closer? Well, no, I was the one that was standing out like at Pier 39 and like trying to get you into oh, the okay. Okay. to the events. And uh, that did not work out at all. Yeah. And then I went into the restaurant industry and the restaurant industry is actually where uh, things sort of changed for me and I found uh, substances. Okay. Okay. And so that was your first, the first time that the substance use disorder reared its head? Yeah, for, for me you? it did, yeah. Okay. And um, at, how old were you about at that I time? was 19. 19 years of age. Okay. So 19 years of age, you're living all the way across on the other coast. You have a partner and you're working in the restaurant industry. You have a substance use, a burgeoning substance use disorder problem, mm -hmm. addiction and alcoholism. And where does that lead you? At, at that point, you're not engaged in the arts at all? Uh, well, I uh, some acting classes. Okay. Um, I tried to take a musicianship class. Yep. Uh, but I, again, I just don't learn in that way. I don't learn by just giving me sheet music and telling me to clap out a quarter note or an eighth note. I just don't. It does not. Uh, for others, it might work. But for me, it did not work. Yep. Um, but I kept trying. But I kept trying in a traditional sort of sense. Um, I didn't yet know that I that it was a different way in which I was going to create what I wanted to create. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I started when I started to smoke marijuana. That was my first venture into drugs. In all actuality, though, food was my first addiction. But I started smoking, and then I started to everything started sort of to go by the wayside. You know, like I didn't go to school anymore, and uh, work was kind of difficult. And then I found alcohol, and that was a wrap for me. Alcohol was, was my it. biggest drug of choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for the next eight years, I ended up leaving San Francisco. My relationship just shattered. Um, and I moved to New York for a year. And then I broke a lot of relationships there with my family and uh, um, couldn't keep a job, had no money, car accidents, sexual assault, all kinds of things happened as a result. Um, so then I came back to Boston and things continued to get worse. I was right. still drinking. Right. Um, and then eventually, eventually, thank God, I found treatment. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to remind folks, we're having a conversation with Elizabeth Addison. Elizabeth is a composer, lyricist, and playwright. She uh, has a production right now, which is going to appear uh, down in the Broadway uh, area, down uh, off-Broadway at Broadway's Supper Club, Feinstein's 54 Below. The production is called This Is Treatment. This is Chapters Radio. My name's Jim Derrick. You can find us on my podcast at chaptersradio.com. At this point, Elizabeth, we're talking about your time in California, and uh, you've come back to New York. Your alcoholism and addiction has has run rampant, and you made a decision to enter treatment. Did that decision come easily to you? Well, no. And I actually came I came home from Boston. Uh, I came home to Boston um, okay. after. So it was San Francisco, New York, New York and Boston. And, Boston. Okay. Um, and no, uh, because, you know, addiction is just so, you know, they'll say cunning, baffling, insidious, powerful, even though at times I, I, I thought I had a problem and eventually I knew I had a problem. I didn't uh, I was still in a bit of a denial in the sense of like. Well, I, I don't know if I can stop. I don't know if I want to stop. Maybe I don't. Ha- maybe I'm not as bad as I think, even though all these bad things keep happening to me. Or if I would try to stop for like a week or something like that, I'd be like, oh, well, I'm OK. I can go back. Um, but that's just the nature of the disease. And so it just kept progressing. Uh, and it was very difficult to make that decision because even though uh, this thing was killing me, uh, it was sort of like that lover that you don't want to leave. Yeah. Uh, or you don't know if you can leave, mm-hmm. rather, mm-hmm. Um, because even though it's abusive and it's killing you, like, I don't know what the other side of that will look like and it was very scary um, and I didn't know what my life was going to look like and so it wasn't an easy decision to go to treatment and- just, I, I'm just curious Elizabeth and I, we've had we deal a lot with addiction on this program and recovery happily and we've had some amazing stories something just stepped out at me uh, visually when you mentioned that it must feel like while this as you said this monster is killing you literally there must it must feel like you're stepping off into a void like there's almost like empty space because you don't know what the other side looks like. I believe mm-hmm. that's what you just said, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I've got to imagine that's a real scary feeling because on, on it, to the non-addict and alcoholic, when we look at people, we say, why the heck do they keep doing this? Mm-hmm. But that's what you know. Yeah. And also it's just it's not, you know, uh if it, it doesn't make sense, it's not a disease that makes sense. Of course not. So, yep. you know, if we wanted to stop, we would stop. Right. Uh, but um, it, it, and, and in terms of getting sober or l- what would treatment look like, it's just, you know, I knew what my life looked like before I started using it. My life sucked before that. Right. So what am I going there you go. towards? Like, there what you am go. I looking forward to? Yep. Um, and then... Do I even want to be sober? Do I even want to, you know, I don't want to feel these feelings that I had before, at right. least with alcohol. That was my drug of choice. At least with alcohol, I know what I'm getting. I know that I will feel momentarily better, um, even though things get bad. But maybe those, maybe that hour, two hours, or however long that I feel better, maybe that's worth all the other crap that comes along with it. Right. Thank, I don't know. Thank you for sharing that. Um, 
I, I just think it's an important part of your story uh, because so much of, of what has informed your play mm-hmm. and your ongoing work are your experiences. Uh, yeah. and, and that's what it's really built around. So you enter treatment in 2011. Yeah. So um, so entering treatment was if I'm going to do it, and but in a very addict sort of way, if I'm going to do it, then I'm going to give up everything. Yeah. I'm going to get really healthy yeah. and I'm going to focus on being an artist. Uh, so just a little backstory as sure, to please. me going into treatment. Um, on the days where I could not afford to go out to restaurants, because my thing was going to restaurants and bars and clubs and all that stuff. And um, I would sit at home in the dark uh, with a gallon of some of the worst vodka ever that was really, really cheap, uh, usually funded by finding lots of pennies around the house. Um, And I would drink and I would watch. uh, So musical theater was still always there. Um, I would watch uh, a documentary called uh, In the Heights Chasing Broadway Dreams. And In the Heights was written by uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Kiara Hudes. And uh, we all know who Lin-Manuel Miranda is now, but that was In the Heights was his first musical. For those that you don't know, he wrote Hamilton. Hamilton. Yes, he wrote Hamilton. Hamilton. <laughs> what an inspiration. <laughs> um, and But in like 2010, 9, 10, the show came out in 2008, but I started seeing this documentary around 2010 on YouTube. And I kept looking at it, and it was music that I knew because my family is Dominican. Um, it was uh, a written by someone that felt a little bit more like me in a way. Um, and it was just, he, there was something about him. There was something about the production. It just made me think, I want that. And I would cry, but a lot of us drunks, we cry a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I would cry yeah. and I was just like, my God, I want that. And a voice kept saying, uh, Elizabeth, you're never going to get that unless you get sober. Yeah. And I didn't know what that looked like because I had sort of let go of this idea of writing a musical because I really just, even though it still lived somewhere inside of me, I let it go to a degree where it was like, I just will never happen. So if I keep thinking about it, it's going to make me sad because I do not, I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability to do it. Um, but maybe I'll become a performer. Maybe I'll, you know, something, but I, I'll go. And so there was a leap of faith in that. And, and what was, what, sparked it though was this desire to be an artist so the art somehow started to become stronger than the voice of of the addiction which is interesting yeah that's really um, interesting and so it took about a year you know i tried going to detox a couple times and never wanting to fully stop and then i ended up i remember one april i ended up in two emergency rooms on the same day uh with like a 3.4 alcohol blood level wow. which i should have been dead right you know um and then a couple of months later i went to treatment and uh within a week and i actually have the journal entries to prove this because uh, i took i always wrote even when i was drunk i always wrote and the first week of treatment i said my god this is so dramatic yeah somebody should turn this into a musical or a play and Did you really? Uh huh. And in the margins, I wrote. This, this is, is the treatment. first week. This is the first week. In the margin, you wrote. This is treatment. This is treatment. Yeah. Which is the name of which the is the name of my show. Uh, and I didn't even realize that until I started to go back, like a few, like maybe a year or two ago, I started to go back and look over my uh, journal entries because sometimes that's how I get inspiration um, to remember what it was like to feel like you know in early sobriety. So a, a, c- a couple of weeks ago, you look back at that. Well, like within the last year yeah. or two years. So, so this is 2011. Yes. That this is happening. 2011. June I, I'm sorry. I had to stop you there because that's an incredible experience. You talk about an aha moment. Yes. Especially and, in hindsight. Well, yeah. And, you know, and at the time, though, I just I never thought 
it would be me. And then I remember making up and I wouldn't have called it a song now because to me, writing songs was like having all the piano arrangements, right, like in the right. accompaniment and all the voice, Sheet vocals, music. all that stuff. That's yeah, what it was, you know. Yeah. Um, but I even like back then I made up, I guess now, a song about <laughs> constipation. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> because the food was so crappy <laughs> that nobody could, <laughs> you know. But you um, know what? It, that's so important to have a sense of humor, right? In the middle of this whole thing. Yeah. So, oh, why for not? sure. For sure. Why not? Um, and I kept thinking, oh, well, you know, maybe I'll write like a a one woman show or something where yeah. I'll embody because I'm an actor and I think I can I think I could figure out how to write a play because I write. Um, uh, I'll embody seven different characters in treatment or something like that. Um, and so this thought kept coming back to me. Um, but then when I graduated and started to I graduated treatment uh, when I was nine months sober. That was 12 months later, right? So yeah. A, a full year program. Full year program. I relapsed in the middle of it, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so I gra- but I graduated. And when I was nine months sober, um, I the th- idea kept coming at me. You know, you need to write this show, whatever. And then one day a voice said, this is a musical. And I look, I said to the voice, it is not a musical. <laughs> um, how can this be a musical? And is, I don't know how to write songs. I got the constipation never, part, but the rest know, of this, how do I make I, it a musical? I have no idea how to do any of this stuff, you know? Um, and I, it, it's sort of like this, like, don't you know? And it was this voice of a, it was this voice though that was with me, that's been with me, sure. you know? And now it just sort of had the audacity to come even like to come forward again. And this be is like, your Elizabeth. old friend. Yes. Yeah. And I was, it, was, it sort of reminded me of teachers who used to always say, Elizabeth, you have so much potential. I'm like, well, that's great. Uh, but what do I do I with it? I love that word potential. Yeah. Like, what do yeah. I do with it? Right. I don't know. Thanks. Like, show me, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, and then I let the, the voice go. I'm like, ah, oh, shut up. Um, and then it kept coming back. And it got stronger and stronger. And I said, well, I don't know. Again, I don't know how to write songs. I sucked at piano. Weren't you there? <laughs> Didn't you see? Um, and and then, then one day, I was at the dance complex in Cambridge. I started to volunteer there because I wanted to be around artists because I said, maybe I'll figure out where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed yeah, to do get one the vibe. day. Yep. You know? And then I started to work with this uh, group and... Uh, I didn't realize that I was too old to be with the group. And then once I realized, I was like, oh, I got to go. How, um, how old were they? I, they were The age limit was from like 18 to 28 oh, okay. or something like right. that. That's and I was 29. Um, and I was just like, okay. But I had met a producer, a young kid, you know. And I was just like, he's, I had written a spoken word piece for him that we were going to use for that project. And he was just like, you have a lot of songs in you. And I said, no, I don't. And I got angry at him again because I'm like, I don't this, that. There was all these these excuses that I had, tons of excuses. Um, and then he said, just find a melody and can write a song. And it was like a, a light bulb went off. And it's funny because people are like, whenever I tell people, like, this kid said this thing to me, they're just like, oh, my God, what did he say? Right. And then I say, right. find a melody and you have a song. And they're yeah. like, yeah. Everybody's on the edge everybody of their seat. Like, but everybody, What's the secret? And then they get like, they you could see that they get like, oh, man, really? That's it, Elizabeth? That's and it. I'm just like, but it, I didn't know that. Right. Do you know what I mean? And I it, totally. And, and I, what's interesting is that I don't do it the way he told me. I actually go and I sit at the piano and I actually compose the music first. So the music comes out of me first. And then I go back and I add all the other stuff to it, the lyrics, the melody, the all that other stuff. But I always, the music is what really gets me first. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what was important about that is that that uh, made me, the next day I went up to Studio 6 in the dance complex, which is at the very top floor, uh, because I didn't want anybody to hear me. And I started to just, you know, play chords and I to this day I don't know what they are I don't know if it's diminished I don't know if it's G I don't I don't know any of this stuff um but I said I, I, I can find chords because you know and I 
think my ear is good enough yeah. to know if something is good. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. And then a voice, the voice, uh, said, just take a leap of faith. Have a bit of hope. The answers will come. This much I know. Just take it day by day and more will be revealed. You know, this is um, incredible. I want to back up a little bit on a couple of things you said. Before I do that, I want to remind people we are speaking with Elizabeth Addison. Elizabeth Addison is a composer, lyricist, and playwright. Uh, She has a uh, play out right now called This Is Treatment. Very excitingly, we'll be playing in New York City this month. My name's Jim Derrick. You're on Chapters Radio. You can find us at chaptersradio.com. And so, Elizabeth, to back up just a little bit on a couple of things that you were talking about, I find it just amazing. You're in treatment uh, for a year. Early on into that treatment, you write in the margins of your journal, this is treatment. Mm-hmm. The musical, basically. Mm-hmm. You name it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so here is this nagging little haunting little voice that you really want to get rid of, mm-hmm. right? You just want to go back to being you. And yeah, I guess I'll be sober, but I'm not really that thrilled about it, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? And um, along the way, you meet this young man who who basically gives you some very basic advice, but it really resonates with you. Yeah. Right? But but I want to get into the feeling and the emotion that's going on in your mind at the time as you're getting inspired. Once he tells you to, that you have music in you, and once you start to sit at the piano and do, you don't know what you're doing, but you just know you're feeling it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you start putting pen to paper with lyrics? Uh, well, <laughs> lyrics are the... Oh, I hate lyrics. Okay. I, I love lyrics and Words. I hate them. Uh, no, but because it, I usually, I'll, I the first five songs or something, I just wrote the music and it felt complete. Sort of like in a, like I remember Billy Joel saying something about how like sometimes with the music, like because he typically writes the music first, uh, where it just feels complete and adding lyrics just feels sort of just weird. Like, you know. I've heard him say um, that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, the music always comes to me first okay. and then I just sit with it and, I and that's kind of it. where I was going so I, I can only imagine that you I'm, I'm, I'm imagining you packed with emotion mm-hmm. you are in early recovery which by definition all of your nerve endings are exposed mm-hmm. you're, you're a walking nerve ending right mm-hmm. because you don't have anything to medicate with anymore and you are I'm sure dealing with uh, a lot of ups and downs and so you've got a ton of emotion you've got this creative voice right and now you're literally setting out to put all of this emotion, this cathartic experience that you're engaged in, which will become your long-term recovery, into a theatrical performance. So the music, what I heard you just say is that it was the music, it was the melodies and the music that you were finding the emotion, the mm-hmm. outlet for your emotion. In. Yeah. I mean, I had an idea. Well, initially, I would just sort of play whatever, and then I would put whatever um, subject to the song. I didn't actually ne- necessarily think of um, the name of the song or what the lyrics what lyrics were going to be. I just sort of just put it out there because so, I wanted to get it out of my system. Right. Like, I just wanted to get this, the music out of me. Mm-hmm. And then I would start to be like, oh, well, this song is called Halfway House Gem. It's about <laughs> it's about relationships and early recovery when you shouldn't be having those kind of relationships. Yeah. Or this song is about long lost friends. And yeah. then I started to try to put a story together and I, I bought the book um, uh, Making a Broadway Musical or something like that. And so I read and I'm like, well, structurally, how do I structure a, a song? Okay, so I can do A, A, B, A, or uh, A, B, C, A, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, and I would look at YouTube videos. So I watch a lot of like the Lynn manuel uh, Miranda stuff and his team with Tommy Kale and Alex Lacamoire. I watch like all the things that they talk about. Um, and that's sort of how I sort of started to uh, find my voice as a songwriter. Um, uh, but with the music, yeah, it, it, 
emotionally, that's where I would put everything first. And then um, I would put like lyrics to it later or title of it, lyrics to it later and stuff like that. I just find that really compelling to envision that creative process because, you know, I would think of it uh, and you mentioned earlier, I think this is really part, important part of your story. You don't learn the same way. I don't. That others might learn. And I've, I've said to my kids a million times, look, we in this world, we've set up a society, at least in America, where you're supposed to do everything in chunks of time, and they're very linear. So you go to grade school for a period of time. Then you go to another four years of high school. Then you go right from there to your four-year bachelor. And then if you want to go on, you get your two years master's or your four years PhD or whatever these blocks are. I don't know who came up with that. I know we're still working schools on farming time, which Mm -hmm. is really bizarre Mm -hmm. to me. But I mean, there's a lot of things about that that just never resonated to me. Mm -hmm. I'm the ADHD poster child. Me too. At a time when it wasn't diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I'm kind of glad it wasn't diagnosed because I'm glad I'm not medicated. (laughs) I kind of like my insanity sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think it adds to to, um, certain things I do a lot better under under the influence of ADHD. Mm -hmm. But um. But when you said you don't learn in a traditional way, how did that manifest itself in your experience here? I thought I was dumb. I I heard a lot of that in what you were saying. So you thought all along the way Mm -hmm. that that you weren't worthy of a goal like this. Yeah. I mean, I just thought, and also not for nothing, if you look at, and even to this day, it looks, I mean, it's changing a little bit. But if you look at, say, Broadway, for example, uh, and composers that have shows that are being produced, it's predominantly white men. Yeah, right, right. Um, right now, there are, are more creatives or uh, creators that are people of color, mm-hmm. but it's still uh, mostly white people and specifically white men. And so even though I was heavily influenced by Jonathan Larson, um, uh, he was a white guy, right, um, who who directed the show, white guy. But there were people of color on that stage, but there have been people of color on the stage for forever. Time. For a right? long, long time. Um, and so I didn't necessarily know that I even had the right to feel like I could write this You're thing. non-white and you're a woman. Yep. And so, you know, and, and couple that with a traumatic, uh, traumatic history right. and, you know, never, I didn't have really influences that told me that I could be more, more, you know. Um, if anything, I, w- I was brought up to have a fixed mindset. So this idea that, you know, if you, if you don't excel right away, then you're no good. Right. You know, um, as well as with school, it just, and I think it was an ADD sort of thing. Like, sure. I just could not focus in school and I could not uh, just homework the whole thing. It just overwhelmed mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, and, and what I've learned is that even though Next month, I'm going to venture into private music classes with a teacher that I really, really trust because there are opportunities coming for this is treatment that make me want to raise the bar. And yeah, so yeah. Um, she understands that I how that I learn and so sort of giving me the basics of uh, so some language that when I go forward, I can um, have a better understanding of what I'm talking about, but still very basic. I don't want to just be like in a class all day, like whatever that would just be held to me. But basically like the way in which our education system is brought is is and the way in which like piano lessons were for me just sitting there and like looking at a sheet of paper and trying to figure out like i'm very very soulful if you listen to my music there's so much rhythm there's so much it's so vibrant it's and it's just, all over the place and it's all over the place there's there's reggae hip-hop. In it, there's hip-hop there's yep. pop there's it's you know but if you give me a piece of sheet music and tell me to find that at the sheet music, within the sheet music, I would not be able to find it. Sheet music just is so boring to me. It's great, and it's something that I need to, you know, I can I can read music basically on a very basic level. Um, I tried to take musicianship classes 
when I was in community college. And the only thing that I came out with is knowing how to do a triplet, which is <laughs> heavily reflected in the music, actually. my yeah. One of my cast members was like, oh, that's why there's so many. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it just I just couldn't get down in that sort of way. And yeah. so what I found for myself is that, you know, um, give me an idea and then let me sort of research it myself. Let me watch the videos. Let me sort of like try to ask people about it and then let me put it into practice immediately. So the bad news is that you that you didn't uh, learn in a traditional way. The great news is that you didn't learn in a traditional way. Yeah. This has allowed your, this has tapped into your creative energy in a way that, that wouldn't have been possible if you tried to fit yourself into a square peg into a round hole. Right. And I think that it's actually, you know, I, I sometimes I am bothered by the fact that I'm now <laughs> in my 30s, which is so weird to say. And I, I sometimes wish that I learned a little bit sooner or I'd been exposed to this idea that maybe just try it your way first. Really? Maybe try figuring it out yourself and then go back and maybe try to take lessons. Like the first five years, you know, when it was, I was, I'm happy that I didn't like decide to go and take a composition class or something like that because I needed to find my own voice as a, as a creative artist. I need to figure out like, what does Elizabeth sound, what does Elizabeth sound like, mm-hmm. you know, um, and have a little bit more confidence in being able to do this thing, you know, even though, Oftentimes during the last five years, I've, you know, I've been in a ball crying, like wanting to relapse because mm-hmm. it's just so overwhelming. Like, cause I also produced the show as well. So I produced it um, at a several places in Boston and Cambridge area. I produced a series of performances in New York City. And now I'm sort of producing this 54 Below show on March 13th. How exciting. Um, but it's just like, and I musical direct it and I accompany it. So I'm going to be the one playing the piano. Mm-hmm. Um and I never thought I actually would be the one playing. I always thought I was going to be somebody else doing it. Yeah. Um, but I've been forced to do a lot of the things that make me super uncomfortable and that I have no idea what I'm doing. And you're, and you're putting yourself, you're in a, in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. Right? I mean, when you when you stretch the envelope like this, yeah. you're opening yourself up yeah. to criticism, to failure, to all of these sure. things that to somebody in, in recovery or, or, you know, with a... With a um, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about how does your recovery... How has that influenced your creative process and what and what is what is it about recovery that adds to or diminishes or is, makes it difficult, if anything? To be, you know, to be honest, I could not do this without recovery. Mm-hmm. I could not do this without the tools that I've acquired, the skills that I've uh, acquired, uh, because I would, you know, a lot of people, um, if you go into uh the 12-step fellowship uh, in some of those meetings, you'll hear people say that, that everybody else had a book on how to live and they were the ones that weren't given that book. You know, they were the ones left out. Um, and that's how I felt. Um, I felt like I just did not learn how to live life at all. But getting into treatment and getting into recovery has given me all these things uh, that has helped me to realize this dream that I had since I was a child. So the just the basic ideas of one day at a time, this idea of keeping it a day or keeping it simple, uh, the spiritual printil- principles of acceptance, patience, tolerance, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, uh, love, faith, hope, these sorts of things that you know I just never even knew or thought about when I was before, even before I started to use. Um, and so that, you know, the idea with the writing of the musical, for example, musicals take a long time. I'm still writing and rewriting. They take a long time. And, uh, but with recovery, it was like, just keep showing up. Yeah. 
just have willingness, right? So just show up and be willing to work and just keep it in a day. And if you just keep doing that and have a little bit of faith that what you've been given, this sort of desire, this sort of calling uh, was given to you for a higher purpose. Um, and if you just sort of stay focused on, you know, you're not like amazing, but you're not like the worst. You're not like a complete trash bag or whatever. Um, you're you know, you are a person that can work hard, mm-hmm. that can grow and that can can as a result of um, the things that you are being taught can live a better way of life. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, how do I live a new way of life? Mm-hmm. Um, Could you talk to me about expectations? So um, I can imagine, I'm imagining myself, uh, trying to imagine myself in your position, if that's at all possible. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, a lot of the dreams that I've given up on have been because I've thought about what my expectations for that dream would be, mm-hmm. what might they might look like. And I say, well, I don't see myself being able to do that. So mm-hmm. I talk myself back down off the step, step ladder and stop. Did you change your, because before you were talking a lot about how you had this little voice, but you said to yourself, no, I'm not good enough for that. I'm not good enough for that. Now you're in recovery and that changes. And you're talking about living in the moment. Mm-hmm. Did you throw your expectations out the window and just say, I'm going to live in the moment and just create and see what happens? Uh, yes and no. Or did you, or did you have this big dream for this? For I've this always production? had this big dream. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not I thought I could do it was, uh, the thing. Okay. Um, and I still believe, I still believe that, uh, you know, I remember, uh, a few years ago I was doing a, a group. I was a facilitator at a group at my old treatment facility. And I said to the woman, I said, what's the difference between, uh, you and Beyonce, for example, uh, and a lot of laughs and, you know, and, you know, and I was just like, you know, the difference is, is that she just believed she, and she had people around her that believed as well that she could do this thing. And then she just got to work. Yeah. You know, yeah, she might have started off better with like a family that believed in her and having more money. But essentially, she just believes that all of this stuff is possible. She believes that she's worthy, that she can have all of this stuff. And then she just works at it. That's the only difference in that sense. It's such a powerful message. And what a what a message for young people. Well, you know, I think we kind of look at these people uh, and think that they, oh, no, I can never, they're better. And, and I keep saying to myself, whenever I get, because I still have fear, I still have doubt, I still have insecurity. Like as treatment, uh, as the musical starts to grow and build and as things, as I start taking meetings and things start happening for it, I'm just like, oh, my God, am I good enough for all of this? And I'm like, well... If Lin-Manuel Miranda is good enough, you're good enough. If Beyonce is good enough, you're good enough. If You know, all these people, there's no difference. They're just people. They're just people. They put right? their pants on the one leg at a time. Exactly. And they just have the audacity to yeah. believe in their yeah. dreams and then just work for it. I love that. Do you know what I'm saying? I absolutely um, do. And so it's not like, you know, um, I just look at it like that. I look at it like anything that I've been called to do or any idea that I have. Um, it's not so much, you know, I don't have this sort of idea where it's going to happen immediately. Like, I don't have that sort of instant gratification thing anymore, you know. Um, I have this, like, if you just work on it and keep going and you talk about it and you build it and you put the positive energy. I'm a law of attraction stop type of person. So if I just put some positive energy towards it and I work, right? So it's not like I can put all this positive energy toward it and just lay on my butt. You know, I have to get to work. I have to get into action. Right? Does it does it surprise you or take you back when people call you courageous? I'm. Uh, it's weird to me. I remember somebody. Yeah. You know, I the, early on, a few people said a certain a few things to me like, "Oh, you have the audacity to right. do this," or "Oh, you uh, you're relentless." Because I'm relentless, and I thought that was actually a, a a negative thing at first. But now I'm like, nope, that's not a bad thing actually at all. Um, uh, it doesn't feel courageous necessarily to me. It just feels like. I have this thing that I got to do, so I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's. I think it, for me, courage is walking through fear. 
Yeah. That's my yeah. own definition. I yeah. don't know what, if that's the actual definition. But that's how I, I envision it. And, and I hear you walking through a lot of fear. Well, and 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 I and I hear you walking through that fear, and at the same time being transparent and honest enough to admit that you still have it. Oh, for sure. That's a huge distinct. That's a huge distinguishing factor, because it's one thing to walk through it and say, "Hey, I'm out on the other side, man," and I'm just I got I'm all yeah, that yeah. in a bag of chips. But it's another thing to admit to admit and to be vulnerable enough to others that may be listening, that you may be mentoring or may hear you and be inspired by you. That you know what? I still have that fear. And those doubts creep in. Yeah, well, that's the one thing that I really take to heart in regards to recovery, Um, experience, strength, and hope, right? We share experience, strength, and hope in hopes that it will help somebody else, right? And I knew early on, and and I'm so excited to like whenever, say, whenever treatment gets to wherever it's supposed to go, to have those Facebook memories and be like, seven years ago, this is what happened. Elizabeth was freaking out and in a ball in the corner, like, you know, Um, because I've always been transparent. I've always been very open about the story because I don't want anybody to assume that it just sort of happened magically. Like, you know, Elizabeth got sober and then everything was fantastic and perfect. I'm still a human being. I'm still an addict. Right. It's not life. It's not, you know. Um, And so I want to share. And I also want to share because maybe it'll help you in some kind of way. I don't know. Maybe, you know, and, and, and as a result, to be perfectly honest, I've gotten feedback. You know, sometimes I post things and, you know, nobody likes it or whatever. (laughs) And I'm just like, oh, nobody's noticing. Is there Uh, anything worse? uh, I did that last night. I posted a podcast episode and no one liked it by this morning. And I'm freaking out. He said, Jim, you're 57 years old. Grow up. Well, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's a thing. It's a sort of adrenaline thing where we're just like, oh my God, somebody likes, you know. Um, But then somebody like a year later or like however long later, we'll just be like Elizabeth X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, oh, somebody was paying attention. Yeah. And that helped me. Uh, Or I remember the first the first presentation of treatment I did, um, uh, the first one was for the people in the uh, mental health and addiction field. And the other one was just for the general public. And the general public, when a lot of recovering people came as well. Um, but two sisters came and one sister was an addict and the other wasn't. And they had not been able to talk and specifically about the, the addiction and how uh, it has hurt the family and stuff like that. And I got an email after the fact, and it was just like, Elizabeth, because of your show, we were able to finally have that conversation, right? And right. so I've heard things like that or things that I've posted, because, yeah, very, very vocal on, on social media about the process, about the good and the bad, right. you know, how many rejections I have. Oh, well, I actually just got this thing now, you yeah. know, um, because it's always, always about helping the next person. Yeah, yeah. And and so it doesn't sound like the story, you know, this is the way you do it. You go out, you get into a train wreck with your life, you go into recovery for a little while, then you have this amazing story mm-hmm. to tell. It's just not linear like that. No. And I've heard other people say that that are in recovery. I just want to remind people, I am really, really enjoying this conversation with Elizabeth Addison. Elizabeth is a composer, lyricist, and playwright. She has a production. This is Treatment. We're going to actually talk a lot more about this production and what it is and what it's about uh, right now. So tell us about This Is Treatment and and what the the play is. So This Is Treatment is a story about women in treatment for drug addiction or substance abuse disorder. Um, And it just sort of... I was really fascinated when I was there because, you know, as a, as a, in treatment, as a writer, you know, we're present, but we're also always observing, mm-hmm. right? And I used to think that, that was a bad thing that I constantly observed, but I, I didn't realize that it actually meant that I was a writer. And I just saw 
these women with these stories. Uh, I heard these stories and there's some of these stories that I heard. I was just like, wow, you know, um, I would never have known. So women who were in jail, women who live, were homeless and on the streets, uh, women who were who were really abused, sold by their parents um, so that they can get the next one or, or they can get their fix. And there were also women that, you know, lived in that grew up really, really well and, and you know, had never lost anything or hadn't lost anything yet. Um, but there was just it was such it was so diverse and it, and it ranged from like uh, 18 years old all the way to like 60 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was also fascinating was that some of these, you know, some of these women, a lot of them actually started around 11, 12, 13 when things started to get really difficult at home and when their emotions were starting to shift as we start to head into puberty. And they were using for so long that when they stopped, they reverted back to that same age. You know, so a 50 year old woman looking in the mirror and even though you're looking at a 50 year old inside, she felt like she was 13 or 14. Right. With, with without the skills of balancing yeah. check, but just a daily, just the daily yeah. skills and, and like like just there social was, abilities. And, yeah. yeah. And it was just so fascinating to me. It was a little scary, but it was fascinating. And again, I had experienced a lot, uh, car accidents, sexual assault, there's trauma. There's all sorts of things that I experienced and hearing, but hearing these stories, it just made me think, wow, the things that we have, that we have gone through, the things that women have gone through. Um, and I just felt as though there was a story here that needed to be told. And so I, I said, well, let me write this this thing. And so that's what it's about. It's about, you know, our struggles. You know, it's about really being honest with our stories, who we are, what we believe. You know, what happens is that even though, you know, with my musical, for example, it, the backdrop is treatment and it's recovery from addiction and stuff. But real realistically, like really when you dig in, it's recovery from life. You know, sort of the hand that you've been dealt and how do I play it to the best of my ability. You know, I've, I've said a few times that we're all in recovery from something. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm, I'm looking to you for for your thoughts on that. Um, I feel like we all are that trauma is relative. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. You, what you're saying is this is just not a narrow interpretation or a narrow a narrow um, um, discussion of traditional substance abuse treatment landscape. Mm-hmm. This can be applied metaphorically and otherwise to right, life. Right. You know, uh, because we, you know, we are telling the story of these women who are trying to get off addiction, but we're also telling the story of the counselor who is struggling with working in treatment and wants to quit because uh, she just has no help and there are limited resources and she keeps seeing people die. And what does that do? I, I had people who saw the show who were just like, I don't, I'm not an addict, but man, I could relate to that counselor. Yeah. I, you know, um, we have women that, you know, have experienced all sorts of things talking about about like, you know, because when you get to treatment, you've put down the drugs, right? So right. now it's dealing with life. And I do believe, I remember when um when I first got introduced to the 12 steps, uh, I just kept thinking, man, everybody could use this. And, and at a certain point, you do use those steps in your daily life, in your daily affairs, yeah. right? Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to make sure that even though, again, addiction, recovery, treatment, all that sort of stuff. I just wanted to make sure that the show was so specific that it could become universal. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, I, I love that's the mission of this program of this show rather, and um, can be um, interpreted and you can draw metaphors and lines to, to, to life in general. Elizabeth, this is a musical mm-hmm. and you've got a variety of actors lined up for this. These are first rate actors that you have. I know the resume of a couple of them and um, you're taking this down to New York City for this this run at the, it's one night at Broadway Supper Club. Is that right? Yes. 54 yeah. below. And yeah. it's interesting. Let me just quickly yeah. 
yeah, story. Yeah, please, please. So I'm a, a, visu- a visualization person. Mm-hmm. And I used to always think that it was so it was so dumb. But even as a kid, I just daydreamed and I would see all these things. And actually, all these things that I daydreamed as a kid actually are happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I would, you know, for the last year or so in the shower, I would be talking to an audience at 54 below i would just be like me? yeah yeah and so like a week before i found oh. out that we were that we got the show um i was just like laughing and you know looking at an audience and having a show in my shower yeah. um and then uh a, a, a colleague got a show there and i was just like how do you do that because it's just it's a place where all the, the tony winners right. and all these people you know like cheetah Rivera is having a series of shows in march there and i'm just like ah um and uh, do i belong here yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, you yeah. know and i said well you yeah. know but i what i like to do is i like to plant seeds sure. right and so this is another recovery thing right so i plant seeds everywhere and they may or may not grow but it just you know you never know um and so the program the person who programs uh 54 below i i just reached out to her a couple of times never saying anything about a show but sort of asking her advice or something like that and then um she would always respond very very nice woman jennifer tepper and um on her Twitter page one day, um, and I probably literally was having a show in my shower that morning. Yeah. Um, she says, if anybody wants a show at 54 Below, uh, we have a few cancellations, so reach out. And I was just like, oh, oh. and so I get to my phone and I'm like, and I just reached out and, and I and I said, well, regardless of what happens, uh, th- this thanks for the opportunity. Sure. It gave me the adrenaline rush that I needed for the day. Sure. This is great. You get back um, in the shower yeah. and start talking and to the people. I was just yeah. feeling great. Um, and then she was like, sure, we'd be happy to consider your show. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like, but just send me all of this. And sure. I looked and it was like Tony's awards, Oscar, like all this, all this stuff. And You're I was kidding. like, I was like, oh, fudge. All, all the disqualifiers. I was like, I can't do this. But I right. said to myself, and then, so I was literally about to say, never mind, Elizabeth, forget this. Maybe next time, yep. you know. And then a voice. Uh, the so same friend. Yes. So you guys will hear a recurring theme. There's just yeah. this voice. Yeah. Um, and it was like, just do it. Because at least then you'll be planting a seed that you want to show. So then when you're actually like famous enough, you'll be able to have a show. Yeah. And so I was like, all right. And so I was, as I always am, I'm completely honest. Uh, something, again, I learned in recovery, right? Honesty, open-mindedness, willingness. I was like, well, we I've done a few shows here in Boston and Cambridge. And uh, we've sold out. But we're new. We're 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 new. We're building on audience. We don't have an audience yet, but we're building. We're strong women who are willing to mm-hmm. to promote and promote and promote. Mm-hmm. And then, like an hour later, she's like, "All right, we're all set." You <laughs> really? What happened? You to all the Tonys and, and quali- like, qualifications you were supposed to. Well, I just you know. And then what's interesting is again, you know, like um, when I was a kid, I used to hear the sky's the limit, but realistically now I'm just like, no, yeah. your beliefs are your limit, right? So I believed. That and there are people that don't have Tonys. Definitely, they don't have Tonys. But it's just that looking at what they presented, it was just like, oh man, this is I'm not this. Um, But if I had let that sort of limiting belief get hold of me, if I had really let that affect me, then I wouldn't have done it, and then I wouldn't have a show. Fear, you know. If you'd let fear interrupt that cycle, right? Right. If I let the fear that I was feeling, what is it? False. False evidence appearing real. Evidence appearing real. So you get this this qualifier, and you look at that sheet, and you say, well, here's the evidence. (laughs) that I can't make it. Yeah, yeah. And you'd stop there. You're done. Yeah. And so for a moment, I was like, oh, man. And then I was like, no, 
plant your seed, Elizabeth. Yeah. You know, uh, that's how the voices yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, so I planted the seed and then, you know, here we are. And then that was like uh, five weeks ago, four weeks, four weeks ago, something like that. And I was like, oh, crud bucket. So now I, <laughs> so now I need to put together a show, um, which I had not intended to do. Sure. You know, you know, a, show, I, a show that would fit this that venue. That would fit this venue. Yeah. Because right. it's, it's a concert. So we're so coming down to 12 show. songs. Yeah. Like 12 songs. Right. Um, right. And so what was what's great is for the last two years or so, I've had uh, the same people with me, um, the same women, uh, which is rare to right. keep a cast that sure. long. You I'll know. bet it is. Um, you know, Chris has been around for a year and a half, a couple other people for six months, a few yep. other people for two and a half years. Mm-hmm. One person left, Lydia Harrell, lovely singer Lydia Harrell, mm-hmm. uh, left uh, in 2015 and then just came back. Um, because what I've done is that I, I've created a, a really safe space for women to just sort of express themselves and, yeah. and enjoy and, and celebrate each mm-hmm. other. And so I guess that, you know, it's working because they've stayed with me this long. Mm. Um, but yeah, I said, hey, ladies, we have a show. <laughs> um, I wish you could see all you know, the, the, the facial and hand gestures. Would you, are you willing? You know, this yeah. is before This is before I got the yes. I'm like, yeah. but we have this thing. So yeah. if it, if, I'm like, I don't think it will happen. But no, if, are you not. willing to go to New York? Right. And then they were like, yep, Elizabeth. You know, I have one woman, Gina Monique, who's like, Till the wheels fall off, like that's always been her saying with oh, me, and I'm just like, oh, I love, I love that. you, right? Um, and so then I was like, all right, we got it, and then they're like, all right, lady, let's do it. And so you know, I was like, all right, so I just booked bus tickets, and I'm like, we're going. Uh, you know, I know Chris Everett, yes. and um, impossible doesn't seem to be in her vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a, a a quality about her that's um, that's really powerful, mm-hmm. and it's her quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, confidence her spirit her spirit it thank reads. you it's an yeah. energy and by yeah. the way you have that same quality oh thank you and i can tell you that I, from the moment i met you I, I could feel that and i understand why chris wanted us to get mm. together um it speaks a lot uh to who you are and to where you're going and uh, i'm just so excited for you and, and for this production uh, is there a way that people can access uh the show when it comes back or yeah oh how do they stay in touch with you well so we have a facebook page uh facebook.com slash this is treatment the musical this uh, is treatment the musical is yes. all all in the title of the facebook page yes please go on there and like it so that you can keep up with this production yes please do i want to remind folks we are speaking with elizabeth addison elizabeth addison is the creator composer lyricist playwright actor uh, and producer of This Is Treatment. Elizabeth, I have a couple of other things that I want to chat with you about. And one of the things that you, you mentioned earlier, that as a black woman, um, envisioning yourself as uh, a producer of this level of a program was difficult. And there was a barrier, somewhat of a barrier mentally there for that. Sure. And maybe physically. I mean. Yeah, no, With in regards to, and it's still in regards to, you know, uh, Broadway, or if you see the musicals that are being produced, the the people that write the shows do not look like me mm-hmm. in terms of plays right we have it's changing mm-hmm. right so you have Lynn Nottage uh, you have like you have um, Denai Guerra you have um, uh, I don't know I'm uh, slipping my mind right now thinking of all the the playwrights um, um, Dominique Morceau I think I'm saying that right um, and so you have you know representation it's, it's starting it's coming um, which is fantastic um, and there are people of color on the stage um, but that's always been something, you know, for me that it's like, it's still, uh, more white people that are on the stage, but they're, you know, in terms of people of color, black people in particular, we've always been on the stage. So I'm more interested in creating the thing. Right. Um, as well as, uh, uh, 
having more stories available for women, uh, women who look completely different, that don't look sort of like the standard um, look. Um, there's uh, all types of roles within my show um, for a white woman, for a black woman, light skinned black woman, dark skinned black woman, heavy set black woman, heavy set Asian woman, uh, you know, whatever it may be, Latina woman, like all these things, they, they all exist within my show um, because it's what I saw, mm-hmm. but also um, it's uh, something that I think needs to be represented on right. a greater level on the stage that right. we're not necessarily seeing. And as well as in terms of me, um, there's nobody... I mean, there's Kirsten Child, uh, who had a, a musical at Playwrights Horizon uh, recently. Um, there's there's a few people, but nobody on Broadway um, that looks like me. There right. was somebody that co-wrote uh, The Color Purple, yep. uh, the musical. Um, I cannot remember her name right now. Right. Um, but, like, it's just, yeah. where are we? And we're in the middle of the Me Too movement. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it's it's just uh, you talked about giving women a voice mm-hmm. and giving them a powerful voice mm-hmm. and, through this production, mm-hmm. um, and that's important to you. You know, I, I look in as a white male, mm-hmm. uh, fifty-seven years of age, having been around the locker rooms and you know the boardrooms in my prior career and um, listening to the talk, and and I'm shocked that it took this long, mm-hmm. um, but I'm glad that it's here. That Me Too movement, men are being held accountable uh, for the power difference. Can you speak a little bit to that and how that how that impacts you or if it does? Well, you know, yeah, Uh, because, again, so if I if my goal one day is to get my show to Broadway. Yeah. um, You know, the people, the the key holders are white men. Yeah, that's just it. And it's just it is what it is. It is what it is. You know, and I remember one time being told that I might need a um, call it um, somebody that that. A proxy or something like that, that uh, a, a white male, like a straw, like somebody to speak for me, you know, uh, because they may not know what to do when you are in the room, Elizabeth. Um, and that's why I'm actually dedicated to creating a, a all f- one of the reasons I'm dedicated to creating an all female team with Wait this treatment. And, and this was after 2011. Yeah, this was like a few a couple of years ago that you may need a basically a, I'll call him a straw person, mm-hmm. white male, mm-hmm. assumingly mm-hmm. to to uh, represent you so that uh, because they won't know what to do with you because of your color and your gender. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. You know. Thank you. And Thank I've you also, for sharing that. Yeah. And I've heard stories of, of what the room is like, you know, because it is an all boys club. And, you know, some may not even realize because that's just the way it's been. You know what I mean? That like this is an issue, but it's just the way it's been. So if you're not used to, if this is what you're comfortable with or this is like, you know, um, if this is something that you've always had or it's always been like that, somebody sort of like looking, like taking a look at you and being like, wait a second, this needs to change. It's going to be like, this is uncomfortable. So mm-hmm. this is, you know, um, and so it's just right now it's, it's, it's understanding where I, who I am, what I look like, you know, um, what the, the game I'm trying to play essentially, like the, the, the industry that I'm trying to go into or that I, I am going into um, and how to have strong people around women in particular around me or men uh, who are, who identify as feminists to, mm-hmm. to sort of like help build this mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, it's not, um, it's like 90% white male. Right. Right. right now. But you know, I, so I think about myself, for example, and I can, I only have my experience to, to relay and thank you for sharing yours. And so my experience is that I'm married to a very strong woman, mm-hmm. very strong, very proud of my wife. But I will tell you that, uh, you know, I have friends and I've having grown up 
over the years. I know that men get threatened by certain <laughs> women's certain economic success, their their smarts, and so on and so forth. I think it's a reality um, that has to be faced. Uh, number one, number two, it's fear driven. We always fear. Fear is as as I'm sure you appreciate is the cornerstone for me in my life of of what has caused me to reject things the hardest. Mm -hmm. So I don't like change. And if you are coming in here and suggesting that I have to change the way I'm operating, I'm sorry, I don't want to talk to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm just not familiar. You you, you look different. You're not who I expected to show up here. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're Elizabeth Addison. I was expecting more of a Gloria something, something or other. Uh, you know, I, I'm not familiar with it, so I'm not going to change. So I, I think what I'm suggesting here is this this work that you're engaged in right now is really, to me, an invitation for conversation. Oh, for sure. As opposed to an in-your-face, uh, you know, yeah. put, putting your hand up and saying, we're shutting down a conversation, this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. But this is an invitation for conversation. Am I sure. right? Sure, and that's what I love about theater. Uh, theater is sort of an, inv- uh, an invitation for a conversation to start a dialogue. It's not, I'm not in your face, you know, and it's interesting because when people think of this show and um, or the musical and think of what I'm doing, it's sort of like this revolutionary sort of courageous sort of thing. Like, oh, you t- tell your story and stuff. Right. And to me, I'm just like, I have the right to, and I fought to have the right to, in the sense that, like, for a long time, I didn't believe that I had the right to, and and now I'm just like, no, I I freaking do have the right to. All of us have the right to tell our stories. That's a great point. You know, and um, you own the story. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, you know, and I'm not trying to get into your face and be like, you should do this or you should do that, because that's not that's not where I'm coming from. I just fully believe that. These stories, my story, we it we deserve to be heard, and we deserve to have a voice. And um, uh, and if you look at some, if you look at this show, and it sparks something fantastic, if it sparks change, a conversation, whatever it may be, great. Um, but what I'm not doing is I'm not pointing my finger at you or shaking my finger at you and telling you how you should feel or what you should think. I'm just presenting you a story, and if as a result of that story you come away with something that that sparks, uh your sparks your sparks something um if it uh, the hope is that you can empathize with these women and some th- somehow changes as as is created or community is built or something like that that's a great hope but ultimately at the end of the day i'm telling you a story but storytelling has been around for forever it's one of our greatest um uh, i don't know what i'm looking for but it, it, it's just something that connects us as human beings and i think especially right now um that's what we need most we need to be able to empathize with each other's stories we need to be able to connect we need to be able to have a dialogue I couldn't agree with you more. Meeting face-to-face, you can't do it on Facebook, you can't do it by email, mm-hmm. you can't do it by text. Having a conversation across the table like we're doing right now mm-hmm. and genuinely listening to each other is the way that that people get to know each other. It's the fabric of life, and it's the way, frankly, that um, it's the best way. It's a, it's it's the law of, of, of attraction as opposed to recruitment. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words... I'm attracted to what you just said. You didn't try to recruit me into it, so I'm going to investigate more. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look more into this. How are women? Uh, how has this world stripped women or attempted to strip women of power? How has a certain class of people been marginalized? Mm-hmm. How have people been stereotyped? Mm-hmm. And do I need to challenge those stereotypes mm-hmm. because I just had this conversation with Elizabeth or watched her production? This, to me, is what we need to do, one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going to countless, we've all been there, uh, high school and, and, and uh, college uh, commencement speakers, and they say, you know, and students, the class of 2017, you must change the world. And I used to think that's impossible. 
you know, you talk about a little voice. My voice was like screaming at me saying, Jim, this has no relevance in your life. What I learned through the experience of others, I had a great mentor in my dad who said, listen, you have two ears and one mouth. Listen, listen to other people, ask questions. And what I learned over time is that we don't change the whole world at once. It's the ripple effect. You Mm -hmm. know, if I talk to you and we have a meaningful conversation and I move the needle a little bit, Mm -hmm. maybe you walk out of the room and you have just a slightly different opinion about, let's just say, the role of women in in society uh, and how they shouldn't be defined or should be defined or whatever. And we have an experience together. Then that person goes in the ripple effect and Mm -hmm. hopefully makes changes. Uh, Your story, Elizabeth, I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. I'm so excited to to see the production uh, itself and to see where your career goes. Um, I know you've got great, great things in store for you. You've already accomplished a lot. And I'm glad you listened to that little voice. Me too. So you complained that you're 30-something years old (laughs) and just getting this dream. Uh, I think there's a lot of people that are envious um, of that. But you know what, folks? You don't have to be. Just listen to that little bird on your shoulder. Sing in the shower. Talk to your audiences, whatever, whatever you have, whatever your passion happens to be. Dream about it and see if it doesn't become a reality like it did for Elizabeth. So for Elizabeth Addison, my name is Jim Derrick. This has been Chapters Radio, and we'll see you next week.